1: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships.
2: Hello, and thanks for downloading the No Bullshit Leadership podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the life-changing power of great leadership, I have two exciting pieces of news. The first is that my new book, No Bullshit Change, is out now in hardback Kindle or on Audible. And the second is that I've launched a brand new online no bullshit leadership training program. It's designed for anybody who has ambitions they want to fulfill, places they want to go, and people they want to help thrive. If that's you, head over to my website, chris-hurst.com to sign up for more information. That's chris-hurst.com. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, I'm Chris Hurst, and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. Leadership is difficult but not complicated, and I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, or politics. Kate Moss is an award-winning novelist, playwright and non-fiction writer. She's the author of nine novels and short story collections and her books have been translated into 38 languages and published in 40 different countries. She's also the Founder Director of the Women's Prize for Fiction, the largest annual celebration of women's writing in the world. She's been Executive Director of the Chichester Festival Theatre and Deputy Chair of the National Theatre. Prior to becoming a writer, she worked in publishing, her final role as Publishing Director at Random House. Her latest book, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, How Women Also Built the World, is a celebration of unheard and underheard women's history. Welcome to the podcast, Kate.
0: Lovely to be here, Chris. So, Kate,
2: you're, I believe, a historian by training. You've written a great deal of historical fiction. What was the inspiration for your latest
0: book? Well, sadly, I'm not a historian by training, but I am curious. And I love history and I've always read a lot of history. And it's partly because without knowing truly and genuinely where we've come from, we we cannot make the right decisions now about how we should live and what the future will look like. So history is so important and we see it. Sadly, we're seeing it so very clearly at the moment on our television screens and the radio um, that people use, leaders use a false narrative about history to justify their decisions and their behaviours and often their prejudice and their bigotry and worse today. So it matters that we tell the whole story, not just a partial story. So with Warrior Queens and Quite Revolutionaries, I was publishing my ninth novel, I've just finished a tenth actually, into lockdown and into the most depressing lockdown in a way when it was winter and we realised our political leaders were incompetent at best and possibly corrupt at worst. And in the middle of that, I was trying to publish a novel. And I love going out and about and meeting readers. And that was not going to happen. So I wanted to do something to celebrate. And so I simply asked a group of friends, writer friends mostly, if they could name me one woman from history they thought should be better known or who they'd like to celebrate. Just very easy question. They didn't have to justify it all. So Lee Ch- a great thriller writer, said the women of the special operations executive. Professor Kate Williams, who's a royal correspondent and a novelist, she said, oh, I think Murasaki Shikibu, who is the Japanese woman in the mid- medieval period, exactly credited with writing the world's first novel. And did anybody give you,
2: a name at that stage, at that sort of nascent sort of stage, did anybody, or indeed did multiple people, give you names that you went, oh God, I've never heard of her. Yes,
0: yes. Now. That was in a way the point, Chris, because I have spent 40 years as a campaigning feminist and I write women's stories on the stage, in nonfiction, in fiction, and with the Women's Prize. My entire life has been about standing shoulder to shoulder with other women and amplifying other women's voices in different ways. But yet there were people being suggested I'd never heard of. So for example, when I took it outside, of the group of nine or 10 people that I had approached in the first place. Claire Balding, for example, mentioned Lily Parr, the great English footballer. Martina Navratilova joined in and re- recommended Catherine Hepburn. But So then I put it out on social media, and it's the only time in my entire life that I have trended as myself rather than the other Kate Moss. And suddenly there was huge numbers of people from all over the world. And then, so I got a tweet from a young woman in Saudi Arabia saying, do you know the great Egyptian feminist, Huda Shawawi? And she had come back from the Women's International Suffrage Conference in 1923 and taken off her veil at Cairo railway station. Now, a hundred years later, women are still not allowed in many countries of the world to decide what they're gonna wear. And then a, a, a tweet from a woman in China, very brave and very difficult to get that saying, do you know the great Chinese writer Ding Ling, who was imprisoned by the communist regime in the middle of the 19th century for her feminist writings? I hadn't heard of her either. So it suddenly became, within days, I had thousands of nominations from men and women all over the world. And I thought, being a writer, there's got to be a book in this. (laughs) But also, for me, I'm a very, I'm positive. I've always believed in positive change and campaigning with hope in your heart to change the world rather than standing on the sidelines moaning or being driven by anger. Anger is really, really important. And we're seeing that in Afghanistan and in Iran and in America at the moment. But for me, it's about how you can positively change people's minds. And that's what my leadership, if you like, has always been about. And so I was very encouraged that most people, most normal people, away from these very complicated times of divisive leadership in almost every country. Most people do want to celebrate rather than pull down. Most people want to say, God, did you know about this? Rather than let's attack that because we don't agree with it. So it, it was a project born out of hope, actually.
2: So so you, you have this sort of organic process that starts with a small seed and then grows into this thing almost as things can on social media, a uh, life of its own. How did you begin to corral all of these names into some sort of order and narrative so that people could kind of engage with it?
0: Well, I think the first thing was that I had to ask myself some clear questions. What is this book for? Because it, it, it just a list of names tells nobody anything very much. I mean, it's great because repetition matters, whether it's in the gym or doing your scales or putting women back into history, it matters. The more you repeat a name, the more commonplace that name becomes, the less unusual the name becomes. So I suppose the book, in a way, is a question to myself, what is history? Who makes it? Who gets to decide what goes into the history books and what is forgotten? And those questions I I answered by the writing of the book and came up with, in a way, four reasons why women were not in history. So the first is deliberate erasure of women. Now, very sadly, we are seeing this actively by the Taliban in Afghanistan. Women are not allowed to see a male doctor, but the Taliban have stopped women being educated or being able to work. So that is active feminist, femicide, because there is, women can't see a doctor. That's the end of that. So, that is deliberate erasure of women from history. And that has happened in different periods of time. And it is a tragic thing that it's happening in the the, the 21st century, of course. Then there is the idea that history has always been written until very recently in human history by men, because it has come from educational and religious institutions that were almost always close to women. So women's battle for education, whether it, wherever it is, anywhere in the world, and women being allowed to write their own stories is an integral part of why women don't appear in the record and why there is a correcting of that going on, not just many, many real historians and people who are curious like me are doing that. And so the book matters because it is about putting the names back. It's also about common sense. Women and men built the world together. We know this. We look around and see this, but yet the history books don't reflect that. You then have an interesting thing, which is if you like the men knowing that the women were there, but they don't think they were doing anything. Now this is particularly pertinent within science, where it has its own name, which is the Matilda effect. And the phrase was coined by an American science historian called Margaret Rossiter in 1997, and she observed that there was a process where even if women were there in science, their work was attributed to the men who worked alongside them. The most notorious example of this is probably Lise Meitner who had to watch Otto Hahn being given the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1944, even though he said, this is her work, I was just helping. In the middle of the 19th century, an American scientist called Eunice Newton Foote identified what we now know as global warming. Absolutely incredible, 1840s, I think it was, but she didn't then make the next leap. And then years later, a male student who had worked un- alongside someone who had worked with her took it a to next stage further, but did not credit her at all. I'm afraid science is littered with women yes, whose work, and yes. and not a science. I mean, natural sciences as well. There is also what I would call benign neglect, which is it's not a deliberate thing to leave the women out, but they are just not there because of what historians call the silence in the archives. Namely, that evidence of women's work is not preserved in the first place. Yeah, so there are these these clear different things. So the book asks that question and answers that question. And then I had this very odd moment of luck, if you will, which is that because of lockdown, I was free to look into my own family history and I turned detective. So I was looking for, if you like, a hook for my list of a 1,000 amazing women. And then I'd always known there was a a relative in my family who had written, but it was always very much dismissed, as women's writing so often is, is as if it's dabbling. It's like doing the flowers in church on a Sunday. It's not real writing or profession. But because I had the time to look into my great-grandmother, I discovered that far from just dabbling on the sidelines, She had been a really famous novelist in her day. She was born in 1849 in Somerset, grew up in Yorkshire in the grounds of the Baptist College, Rawdon, and then lived for all of her married life in London and died in London in 1932. And so she was my father's granny and he knew her. She was old. Yes, I come from a family of long living women and she was Gladstone's favorite novelist. So when her most famous novel, The Vicar of, yeah? Vicar of Langthwaite was published in 1893. When it was reprinted, there was a foreword from Gladstone saying a new novel from Lily Watson is to be celebrated and shouted from the rooftops. And he wrote to the Times to say so. Now this gave me my in, if you like, to the book. She was really famous in her day. Yet now you will not find a single reference to her anywhere. All of her books are out of print. You can't find any reference to her articles. And that made me ask myself, if a woman like that disappears, what about everybody else? Because I had, well, not naively, but in a way had thought that the people who had disappeared were just, they weren't very well known in their day either. And what I discovered was that most of the people that had dis- women who were not in the history books were really well known in their day. So it was a matter of recording of history, not their lack of profile, if you like, at the time. And so that is a very different thing from just people not knowing about what women are doing. And it's a very interesting thing that as I was writing the book that became clear to me was that there is a very powerful narrative of the one extraordinary woman who is different from all other women. So the history books do allow the Jones of Arcs and the Catherine de' Medici's and the Catherine the Great's and all of these people. They allow some of the women from the SOE, you know, whoever it is, but they peddle the narrative that they were exceptional, not usual women, i.e. that all, most women just sit around doing nothing, but every now and again, and quite often the, the, the story goes, Quite literally, with Elizabeth I, I have the heart of a man, the body of a woman, but the heart of a man. But we know this isn't true. Women are easily as strong and as determined and, and enduring as men. And that was a very interesting thing. So, for example, Rosa Parks, incredibly important woman, extraordinary woman in every single way. But she was far from being the only freedom rider. So Rosa Parks, we know the story. Alabama. Montgomery, bus protest, 1955, refused to give up her seat and moved to the back of the bus, which the racist Jim Crow laws of the South insisted upon. But what about Paulie Murray, who in 1944 had refused to give up her seat? What about Claudette Colvin, who had not given up her seat nine months before? Well, the answer is that Claudette Colvin was an unmarried 15 year old black girl and was not seen as the appropriate person to be the figurehead for this campaign. Paulie Murray, back in 1944, was, as she described herself, an in-betweener, what we nowadays would probably call a non-binary person. And she was not seen as an appropriate person. There were too many other complicated issues. Rosa Parks, credible woman, was a lawyer, worked for the NAACP. She was professional, clever, able to hold the whole story, if you like. So that is something that I became very passionate about, the idea that by raising up one woman at the expense of all the others is, is also damaging to the story that it is all women and all men working together, not just all the men and one or two very special women.
2: So in writing the book, who was the person that you didn't previously know, who you discovered through this process? Who struck you in whatever way, whether that be moved you, inspired you, stayed with you the most?
0: There are so many. I I will pick as an example the Edinburgh Seven, the most famous of whom is Sophia Jex Blake. And they were a group of female medical students who were training in Edinburgh, Edinburgh and Ireland, Trinity, Dublin in particular, were ahead of England. They allowed women to start to train um, at the end of the 19th century, although they weren't allowed to practice, which is daft, because why would you ever stop anybody from uh, fulfilling a vocation to care for other people, male or female? Anyway, it came to a head. There was a lot of objection to women being allowed to study at all and the ideas that women's poor brains would blow up and their bodies wouldn't let them and we, we were frail creatures. And so in they went to do this at the Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh, November 1870. And a mob was there to meet them. Male students, some male professors, men who just hated women or didn't think women should be doing this. And it was very ugly. And they pelted them with marjoram. And, and were threatened. Threatened. I mean, threatened yeah, no, they were actively being concerned. threatened, yes. And the, the police officers weren't stopping them. And, all, and it, it was very ugly scenes. They even stole the university mascot, which was a sheep called Meili, and let the sheep loose in the examination hall. So everything to threaten, to belittle, to humiliate the women. Now, what was interesting was that this, this is this lovely thing, the law of unintended consequences. Majority view was opposed to women being allowed to go to university and train and get degrees and become doctors or anything else. However, the behaviour of the men was so abhorrent that the next day the newspapers ran a critical piece about the male behavior saying, is this what we expect from our city, from our male students? If they behave like that, well then maybe the women should be being allowed. And because of that moment of vile resistance and objection, oddly, the rules changed. So these were the stories that I loved that sometimes the sheer stupidity of the some men's objection. And we see, we're seeing it today the idea that because somebody is a woman, they should not be, they're not human. They shouldn't have the same rights as the men have got. And this is, this has happened throughout history. So,
2: my, you asked me at the start and then you said you were going to come back. So I will volunteer it. The person that I knew of, but was most delighted to discover in your book, if you see what I mean, so it's a slight sheet, who, again, at the time, I wouldn't say, I mean, she wasn't, I wouldn't imagine, was ever extremely famous, but she was very well known within a certain field, was Beatrice Schilling. So for those that don't know, it's a slightly cryptic, for those that don't know, she basically created an incredibly clever and very crucially, extremely practical, solution to a very big problem that the RAF had at the start of the war that's with right. their engines and she there is no question that she she saved she saved many lives as a, as a, yep. as a consequence both in terms of stopping people getting bombed and the, the the RAF pilots but she I mean she was a she was extraordinary she raced motorbikes she and also didn't she? I mean, she she was, was absolutely incredible, incredible. Woman.
0: the point about this is celebration and what I love is people going oh I never knew that that's extraordinary you know, quite often, obviously, there will be people with steam coming out of their ears when the miscarriages of justice or the people who've been, the great bravery that many women have shown and the terrible consequences of of being principled and standing up for what they wanted. Again, we're seeing that at the moment. But at the same time, there's a great deal of fun in this because all it shows is that, as the subtitle says, women and men built the world together. and. Together, we're better. We've got a chance of making things better. And I'm still an old-fashioned idealist. I'm now in my 60s, but I'm keeping going here. I still believe that we should try to leave the world in a better state than we found it. And that so many of the women did this. And also the men, the wonderful men who loved them and were at their sides. And that's also very important. That's one of the things that does matter a great deal to me, which is this is not about... In any way, doing down the achievements of extraordinary men. The one thing that was a challenge is that you do have to also put all the women back. And what I mean by that is that there is a temptation with this kind of book to only put and include women that you agree with or approve of. But women's place in history cannot be about likability because. It's about how an individual behaves. Do we think that all women are wonderful and all men are awful? Of course we don't. So let's be, we, we need to be honest about that and put the women in we don't agree with. Several people said to me, I can't believe you mentioned Margaret Thatcher. I said, well, she was the first female prime minister of this country. Don't, uh, don't, uh, don't be I ridiculous. Say,
2: I would say, and I'll probably get a, get cancelled saying this, I was surprised at how little space you gave Margaret Thatcher, if I'm honest with you.
0: Well, you see, that, yeah, but t- to be fair to me on that, It's that there's very little space to people in living memory. It's very much because I felt that living memory and living legends, that that's a whole different project and it's changing all of the time. So there are a handful of people who are alive, who are in the book, who are very significant and Angela Merkel, Malala... Many of the amazing young women who are leading the environmental and climate campaigns, which is very much a young female led movement and that they needed to be there. But for the most part, I didn't give much page space to people that we know a lot about. So, I mean, she, Margaret Thatcher gets the same amount as Elizabeth I does or Queen Victoria because we know, we know. they Because those yes. leaders. <laughs> they're well yeah, covered. They're well yes, covered, yeah. yeah. I agree.
2: But but I think your fundamental point is right. We talked at the start about what is history for. How do we learn from history? I mean, we always everything we see we see through our own lens. We can't. There's no such thing as op, total objectivity. I don't think. But we but we should strive to be objective and at least I think strive to be aware of our, our own biases, our own black spots in our dark spots in our own knowledge or whatever it is. And the historian's view is to shine a light into those places, isn't it? Even if those sometimes those things are uncomfortable or we disagree with, because that's those are the times we start to learn. If all we do is hear things we already know and already agree with, we're not we're not learning. No, that's
0: right. And it's the echo chamber. And of course, we know. Back back to the theme of what leadership is. Leadership is having a vision and taking everybody with you. I mean. We are in a very complicated period of history at the moment. History is a pendulum. It swings backwards and forwards. And we are in the misfortune to be being led by people who are governed by self-interest rather than public good. And this isn't the only country that it's happening in, but it is very marked at the moment compared to some periods of history. But true leadership is about how you create a a business or a a piece of theatre or a country that does the best for the most number of people it can. It will never be everybody, rather than the, the fewest. It's really, it's not, as you see, your wonderful introduction, it's not complicated.
2: <laughs> and, no, but it is difficult.
0: <laughs> but it's difficult, and also it relies on the people doing it to have good motives, which is not about self-service, and it isn't about personal gain. You know, that that is the thing, the idea of public service is slightly old-fashioned at the moment, it appears, but it shouldn't be because that is what it should be.
2: I probably have quite an old-fashioned view on this, but I think that, certainly when we think about our politicians, I don't know, oversimplify a very complicated arena, but I think that we will start to thrive as a society when our politicians remember, rediscover, whatever word you want to use, that they are there in service of the s- institutions of the country and the state, not the state and the institutions being there in service to them. Which doesn't mean that things can't evolve and change. Things always have to evolve and change. It's it's not an argument for sort of either small C or or or, or capital C conservatism necessarily. But 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 I think it's about that sense of service uh, to something bigger than me as an individual. Yes.
0: And also, I totally totally agree, and it's also about good governance and good leadership and is often about compromise, how well you can find a compromise that works. Autocracies, dictatorships, they serve a very, very narrow band of people and they actively demonise everybody else. That's how they survive. So that's about power, not about service. And that was one of the things when I was writing the book that I I discovered so many of the women were essentially putting their own lives in one way or another. It could be actual death threats or it could be their opportunities. But they were prepared to sacrifice those things for the good of all. And that is extraordinary. And And as your point about the exceptional people not everybody can do that or is in a position to do that or wants to do that. But I did notice that there were characteristics, that kind of sense of vision of single-minded purpose. I am going to train as a lawyer, even though they don't want to let me in, for example. Or I am going to carry on the amazing Rita Levi Montalcini, who was a Jewish-Italian scientist who, of course, as the racist and anti-Semitic laws started to come into play in Italy was not able to teach at the university. She continued to do all of her experiments in her bedroom until they managed to flee to America. And then American University gave her a lab to repeat all of these extraordinary experiments that she had done in her bedroom with all the windows covered. So the thing is that it would have been very easy to go, we just, I, I can't, I can't do any of this because I'm Jewish and they're not going to let me. I think it's it's also resilience. I think that sort of sense of keeping at it for year after year after year. People like Ruth First in South Africa, for example, one white woman sitting on her own for 20 years or whatever it was, in surrounded by Afrikaner and Boer men who hated her because she was Jewish, hated her because she was white, hated her because she was a woman. For year after year after year, the suffragettes, Year after year after year after year, it's it's that. So it's not it's not just being able to burn bright, this great sort of power and courage at that key moment, but it's the resilience and the stamina to keep going until you've effected the change you want to see. And that really is something. And that I spent a lot of the, my poor family. I would come out every day finishing working and go, I've just got to tell you. And they were like, oh God. It's another (laughs) another inspiring woman when all we're doing is making a piece of cheese (laughs) on toast (laughs) in our slippers.
2: Well, look, there are so many things that we didn't even get to talk about. And I promised we'd finish on time. So so I will hold that promise. But it was so fascinating talking about all the incredible women that you... Discovered, rediscovered, uncovered, and and in through your book. We could just keep going. So I wanted to say a huge thank you for your time. I found that incredibly inspiring. I'd urge everybody to go and buy it.
0: I'm gonna leave you with a final did you know? Did you know? I'm gonna the last did you know that it's also about the whole woman, not just the thing we know. So everybody knows Florence Nightingale. Nursing, lady with a lamp. But did you know that Florence Nightingale was a brilliant statistician and she actually invented the pie chart? That is my gift to you this morning. Did she? I she didn't did. know
2: that. I are. didn't know that. My did you know is somewhat more, let's say, open for controversial. But, but Mary Seacole, who when you mentioned yeah. Florence Nightingale, I think Mary Seacole. There is, a, there is an, an unconfirmed... And this is very random, this, this... There is an unconfirmed theory held by some historians that Mary Seacole somehow or other ended up caring for Nelson's daughter, Horatia, after, who was lost to the historical record after Emma Hamilton died. Nobody knows what happened to Horatia. And I, I, read, a, I read a biography that said there was some sort of te- slightly tenuous historical evidence that Mary Seacole ended up caring for her. Oh! Which... What well, a fa- what a fascinating story to try and earth that really would be, but there you go. Okay, Kate, okay. so I um, absolutely loved having you on. It's great to see you again. It's a great book, and thanks for all the inspiring stories.
0: Brilliant. Thanks for having me.
1: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.